When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. It's great to be back. We've had a little interregnum while you've been in the United States. And that's where I would like to start today, asking you about your reflections on your visit, both social, political and economic, anything that you might have learnt or observed, um, both whimsical and perhaps data-based. I'm particularly interested in the developments political, because there's lots of chatter in some US media, at least, about the upcoming midterms and the way in which the Democrats might just, thanks mostly to the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, be make, the Democrats be making a comeback. We're obviously going to talk about interest rates, getting back to things economic. And at this point in the podcast, if I was playing music, I think I'd be playing an old track by the village people called Macho Man, um, adjusted, of course, for these times when we call it Macho Man and Woman. Um, Because I do think that we are at risk of um, central banks outdoing themselves with their desire to be seen to be macho. There's a lot to talk about the Irish economy and political situation. And I know that you want to talk about the latest economic data. And I want to talk about something we've mentioned many times on this podcast, but there is lots of reasons to do it again. Episode 42, if you like, about the dystopian nightmare that is the Irish economic and political scene. I've got some interesting numbers on that. We will also talk, of course, about energy and commodity prices generally, but energy in particular. If we've got any time at the end of the podcast, I might say a little bit about the death of Queen Elizabeth II, but somehow I doubt we're going to get around to that. But let's just mark that occasion. So Jim, to you, you're back from the States. I hope you're over your jet lag. Welcome back, as I say. Please tell us what's going on in America. Thank you, Chris. Good to be back again. Yes, spent just over a couple of weeks in the West Coast, San Francisco and north of San Francisco. You know, met a lot of people, did a lot of stuff. Um, Unfortunately, probably drank too much red wine on occasions. 
uh, but that's the Californian wine country, the impact it has. The States is really interesting at the moment. I mean, there there is, as we've picked up so many times, huge issues around social division and basically civil war. And there's certainly, you get this sense of a huge sense of anger out there. Everything I, I think we've seen and read over the last couple of years uh, during the, tr- well, the aftermath of the Trump presidency is very real. It certainly resonates. Interesting, I would have said on this podcast numerous times and written elsewhere that it seemed an inevitability that the Democratic Party would lose both houses of Congress on November 5th in the midterm elections because, you know, history shows us that the incumbent party of presidency typically has a significant swing against it in the midterm elections, almost always happens. And at the moment, the Democratic Party has a very narrow majority in both houses of Congress, and it would take a very, very minor swing to actually take both houses back to the Republican Party. And of course, what that would then imply is the possibility of giving renewed vigor and momentum to Donald Trump's attempt to come back to the presidency in the November 2024 election. We have, I guess, sensed in recent times with Roe versus Wade, with the revelations from the January 6, 2021 investigations, that Trump was being fundamentally damaged. And I certainly get the sense now that moderate Republicans in California um, who would have voted for Trump um, are certainly a lot less inclined to vote for Trump. And I know California is not, and particularly San Francisco, is not a bellwether for anything really. But there is a sense in the United States that Trump has been seriously damaged by everything that has happened in recent times, and that there is also a sense that the Republican Party is pretty toxic at the moment, although numerous people said to me that Ron DeSantis actually wouldn't be too bad. Um, I'm not sure about that. I think he has a lot of qualities I wouldn't be exactly enamored with. But I guess the key point here, Chris, is that the inevitability of the Republican Party regaining control of both houses is less strong. And hence, well, part of that is that the the probability of Trump having another run at the presidency has certainly lessened in recent times. The other thing that strikes me is the impact of the significant Federal Reserve interest rate tightening. A lot of people telling me about the increased payments on lending that they're having to make at the moment, particularly in the construction area, um, definitely having a significant impact. And of course, if the Federal Reserve continues to tighten as it probably will. There's a, there's a lot of concern about the US economy over the next 12 months, but there's also a huge element of uncertainty about the future. And I think uncertainty kind of sums it up from an economic perspective, because as is the case here and in many other countries, the one thing that's very marked in San Francisco and Northern California is the labor market issue. You know, the unemployment rate is obviously at very low levels in the United States and has been for the last year post-COVID. Everywhere you see labour-wanted signs, and it's quite clear that restaurants, the hospitality sector particularly, but also retail, are really struggling with staff at the moment. So everything we can say about labour market conditions in Ireland, for example, um, much larger in um, California at the moment. Uh, The other thing, that struck me 
about San Francisco is the fact that the city itself, um, and I saw this the last time I was there as well, and apparently it has got significantly worse since then. Downtown San Francisco has become a total utter kip at this stage. There's a massive homeless problem. There's a massive drug problem. There's a massive social disorder problem. And some of the stuff that I heard about, read about, and saw a little bit about, and people told me about, about the behavior of people on the street is is quite extraordinary. And I, would, I wouldn't even discuss it on a podcast like this. And indeed, I picked up a book called San Francisco by a, a guy called Michael Schellberger. And he was a guy who was very, very much behind the liberal progressive agenda in San Francisco, you know, in relation to homelessness, in relation to drug use, etc. And he is he now admits actually that he's totally wrong, that that whole progressive liberal approach to addressing these social problems has backfired very badly and has created a total kip in San Francisco. And indeed, last night I saw him tweeting a video of downtown San Francisco yesterday where the social behavior on the streets was just extraordinary. So it's becoming a bit of a no-go area, which is very sad for a city that I think traditionally would have been regarded as one of the most, um, I guess, romantic places in earth to visit. Um, San Francisco always has connotations of very positive connotations, you know. But So there's a lot of stuff going on, but I guess the overriding um, message I get is the... um, the deep, deep divisions and anger within U.S. society at the moment. And clearly, Trump has exacerbated that situation. I did meet a lot of people who were sort of saying to me that, well, now you can see why people voted for Trump. Wow. That's quite something, Jim, and quite sobering. But let's move on in the interest of time. Uh, One big event this week was, of course, the European Central Bank putting up our interest rates by 75 basis points. The first time I think that they've ever done that, three quarters of a percentage point that has immediate impact on anybody on a tracker and probably all other kinds of mortgages and all other kinds of borrowing. And as I hinted in my introduction, I worry a lot that they are at risk of overdoing it because there's lots of chatter accompanying this interest rate rise that they're going to do another one quite quickly um, on the same sort of scale. Our own uh, Philip Lane the ex-central bank, Irish central bank governor, has long been urging a more modest pace of interest rate rises. I don't know what he thinks now. He's been a bit quieter recently. Um, Another ex-central bank governor, ex-Irish central bank governor, Patrick Honan, wrote in the Irish Times this week that he hopes, and it was a thinly veiled hope, um, that they won't overdo it. I'll put it more strongly. I think that they are a great risk of overdoing it, which is why I call them macho men and macho women. Um, they're emulating the United States, the Federal Reserve, that it too in the last month has put interest rates up by three quarters of a percentage point and lots of, again, chatter around them doing another one quite quickly. That's not the first 75 basis points hike that they've done, of course. Central banks seem to be determined to hike interest rates a lot from here. We've talked endlessly about that. I think that the European Central Bank in particular, more so than the United States, I still think the Fed is at risk of doing this. But the thing that worries me most is the possibility that the ECB is going to repeat the mistakes it made over a decade ago, 2011, 
when interest rate rises there caused a double dip recession in the eurozone and indeed arguably precipitated a eurozone crisis. We're away from that happening yet, but with the political developments, particularly in countries like Italy, that appear to be on the verge of electing a far-right majority government, they usually have coalitions, but it seems that the, the, the opinion polls are pointing to a strong result for the far-right in Italy. I see storm clouds gathering for the Eurozone, both economically and politically. It might seem superficially, if you look at the rate of inflation in the Eurozone, getting up towards, but not at, double digits, that higher interest rates are obviously required. But I go back to my simplistic point that it's been all about, mostly all about energy, and raising interest rates will not get the gas price down. And interestingly, Jim, one of the things that seems to be happening is that the gas price is falling, because um, they appear to be getting macho about inflation just at the time that the original driver's inflation are coming down a lot. Since August the 26th, natural gas prices in Europe have fallen 40%. They're still very high. That's 40% of a very big number. But still, one of the bellwethers of the commodity price shock was actually wood lumber, as it's called in the trade, in certainly futures markets. That was one of the first commodity prices to show signs of spiking. Since January, wood prices on futures markets at least have fallen 60%. And since the peak in oil prices in March of this year, the oil price is down nearly 30%. Now, obviously, all of these prices can go shooting up again. I'm not going to forecast that these are trends that are likely to continue. I merely observe that this has happened. So I just wonder about central banks and their newly discovered appetite for jacking interest rates up. And explicitly, in the case of the United States, and I suspect in the case of Europe, wanting us to go into recession. What do you think, Jim? Um, I totally agree, Chris. Um, I, I, I look at the drivers of inflation in the Eurozone and the United States, and it's quite clear in the United States that there was more of an excess demand problem there because um, the United States experienced massive fiscal stimulus um, during COVID. Um, obviously, there was massive liquidity injection into the economy through quantitative easing and so on. And um, with an economy at full employment, there was definitely a sense that some of the inflation in the United States was being driven by excess demand, whereas in Europe, much less so. Um, I never believed there was a problem with excess demand in the Eurozone economy uh, and that most of the inflation problem was caused on the supply side with commodity and other prices rising strongly as a result of COVID and then the Ukrainian war. Um, So, Increasing interest rates this aggressively um, in an environment where demand is certainly not and nowhere near out of control, um, I do believe is a policy mistake. Um, But it's clear from Powell and the European Central Bank people at the Jackson Hole um, seminar or the the gathering in Wyoming there a couple of weekends ago um, that they're explicitly saying now that they are prepared to push their economies into recession um, in order to try and kill an inflation problem that is not caused by excess demand. Um, that is worrying, and I agree with you um, about the, the political implications of that because no doubt about it that the the response of many governments to the great financial crash back in 2008 um, in other words, the um, austerity 
response to that definitely continue to, I won't say sow the seeds, the seeds has already been sown, but certainly irrigated the political extremism that we've seen around the world. And um, if central banks make this policy mistake, push their economies into recession, just as we emerge from uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I just think that's going to drive even more political extremism. So I'd be very concerned. And, you know, I thought the European Central Bank was pretty explicit on Thursday um, about the chances they could deliver another 75 basis points um, over the next couple of meetings. Um, it, it is concerning. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and what I would say is that people shouldn't panic too much at the moment about rising interest rates because regardless of how high the European Central Bank drives them over the next 12 months, um, the likelihood is that rates will have to come down again very quickly thereafter. Um, But unfortunately, they will be coming down in an environment of economic recession. So you'd have to be extremely concerned about the European economy um, over the next 12, 18 months. Um, And to somewhat a lesser extent, the United States. We're going into a winter now. Autumn is almost here, depending on who, which date that you take. Some, think, some people think that it's already here. The weather has certainly changed. Thank, thankfully, we're getting some rain, uh, certainly in the UK at least. This crisis that we're facing of high energy prices, notwithstanding recent falls, they're still very high. We've got a big policy response from Germany last weekend, 65 billion euros. We had a huge policy response, massive in the UK this week from the new prime minister, who in the space of a number of hours went from promising no handouts, the only economic policy I will ever follow is tax cuts, she introduced the biggest handout of all. And depending on where energy prices go, it could be 150 or even 200 billion pounds. Quite an extraordinary vault fast, quite an extraordinary policy U-turn. So um, already we, we have interesting policy experiments from the new prime minister in the UK. And the UK is in a very weak position fiscally, in terms of budget deficit, where it will actually get this money from remains to be seen. The economy is weak, and so it's not in a good position to face up to this energy and other crises that we face going into the winter. But I must say, Jim, uh, having spent a couple of days in Ireland recently and looking at the recent numbers, Ireland couldn't stand a, a greater contrast to the UK. If there was one economy in Europe that looks to be in the strongest possible starting position for going into the winter energy crisis, it seems to be Ireland. The numbers for the economy for the first half of 2022 hinted a little bit of a slowdown around the edges, particularly the forward-looking PMI type numbers, but the GDP and the GNI star and all those other things that you, you rightly talk about all look good for the first half. So momentum is certainly still there, still growing. Perhaps uh, there are some economies in Europe that are not. Um, And of course, that bellwether indicator that you mentioned originally at the the top of the show, the Exchequer returns suggest, firstly, that Pascal Donoghue is drowning in cash. And secondly, that the economy is still going gangbusters. Uh, yeah, I mean, you say, as you say, the forward-looking indicators like the purchasing managers indices and consumer confidence are pretty weak, and there definitely has been a slowdown in consumer spending. Um, and we we got data from the CSO in the last couple of days showing a remarkably high level of personal savings in the first and second quarter of this year, a savings rate of around 20%, which is roughly double where it would normally be 
Okay, so that that does indicate that number one, people are continuing to earn money, um, and no surprises there, given that the unemployment rate is at four point three percent, and given that at the end of June we had two point five five million people working in the economy, which is by far the highest level we've ever seen. So the labour market is strong; people are continuing to earn. Um, but there is a precautionary savings element there because people are concerned about rising interest rates. They are concerned about the global economic outlook, um, energy prices, cost of living, all of that stuff. Uh, but the, the exchequer finances are just incredibly strong. You know, 49.8 billion collected in the first eight months of the year, up 26% or 10.4 billion on a year earlier. So, and, and there is no greater, in my view, indicator of what's happening in the economy than tax revenues because economic activity generates tax revenues. And if you're getting strong tax generation, it means that you're getting strong levels of economic activity. Um, and the, the bit, I guess, that stands out here is what's happening on the corporation tax side. 11.8 billion collected in the first eight months up 24% or 4.8 billion on last year. Um, and having hit just over 15 billion last year, the likelihood is we'll collect over 20 billion in corporation tax this year. Income tax, likewise, very, very strong. Uh, the, the challenge here for Pascal Donoghue really is that um, given the populist political pressures that are building to spend money on anything that might help alleviate the cost of living crisis. There's going to be huge pressure to spend that money. And there was an interesting report from the Department of Finance this week as well, um, which certainly resonated with a lot of stuff we've been talking about in recent times. <clears throat> excuse me, in recent times. It's looking at the, the risks associated with the corporation tax side. Um, corporation tax at the moment is accounting for almost one quarter of total tax receipts, 23, 24% at the minute. Okay, that would have been down at 15, 16% five years ago. And over 50% of this corporation tax comes from 10 companies. There's obviously a concentration risk here, as we've often spoken about. And the department, using a number of different assessment tools, tries to assess what level of that corporation tax take is windfall and as a consequence could be vulnerable to disappear overnight um, in certain eventualities. And they estimate that that figure could be four to six billion, but could actually be higher than that. So the, the main message from the Department of Finance is that while corporation tax receipts are growing very strongly, it would be foolish of government to spend that money aggressively um, which is a problem we had back in 2006-7 when we were spending corporation tax, sorry, construction tax receipts um, very aggressively. And when that base disappeared, we had a problem. If I might just interject there, Jim, I think that the discussion is well put in those terms by the Department of Finance and your summary, of course, is excellent. But I think that it's more nuanced than that. I think that the issue is what do you do with windfall taxes at the time that they occur? It's really hard to identify what taxes are structural or what, what you call permanent and what are temporary. 
Chris, I was about to get there. Yeah, the, ra- the yeah. rainy, di- the rainy day fund. Absolutely, this is yeah. a real, and so we're going to compete with each other here to actually make the same points. If I might make it once, and you, you can make it twice, just just for emphasis, the right thing to do with temporary taxes, if you can spot them as being temporary, is not to spend them in a permanent way. It's actually okay if you're in an economic emergency, if it's raining, economically speaking to spend them in a once-off way. The problem that we did back in the day of all those property taxes is that we embedded those revenues into permanent spending commitments. That's the key thing that you shouldn't do. There are times when it's appropriate to spend temporary taxes, and those times are when it's raining. And so what I would say is that we should have set up a rainy day fund for windfall corporation taxes 15, 20 years ago. And Charlie McCreevy arguably did that in a different way, in a different life, in a different set of circumstances. Now is not the time to be setting up or increasing the contributions to the existing rainy day fund, because there is one, believe it or not, a legacy of those Charlie McCreevy days, actually. You don't save for rainy day when it's raining. And it's raining now. It really is. So I wouldn't start from here. I understand where the Department of Finance is coming from. They are saying everything they're saying is true, but I don't think it's the whole truth. And I really feel strongly that the way in which you frame this budget, because that's what we're talking about here, the upcoming budget in Ireland on the 27th of September, is that it's perfectly, in my opinion, okay to spend these surplus or temporary or windfall revenues, but it only in a way that's once off. Do not build them into permanent spending commitments. That's a hard trick to pull off. We haven't managed it in the past. Um, And then in the future, when it's not raining, think very seriously about the rainy day fund. We should have done it before. We should do it in the future. But now is not the time. I don't know whether you agree with that point. I I agree and disagree. Um, I don't agree that it's raining in Ireland at the moment. Um, You know, all indicators are still very positive. So I actually think some of that windfall corporation tax receipt should be put into a rainy day fund in the budget. We can see the rain coming, Jim. We can see it coming, but wait until it comes, okay? Um, And the the, the other point is that um, in the budget, I, I totally agree, there is definitely a need for a significant injection of support for those people that are most badly affected by the cost of living crisis. But what we're going to see... I fear is number one, there will be a universal approach to this. So everybody will get money regardless of whether they really need it or not. And that that that's what happened back in March with the electricity credit of 200 euro, uh, which was an expensive measure. Um, and a lot of people got that that didn't really need it. OK, we'll all take money gladly. But the point is, do we really need it? And um, the danger is in the budget on September 27th, you'll see the same thing, that there'll be a universal approach to this, that they will throw money at everybody and everything. And I also hope that the main focus of the spending measures will not be on increasing social welfare payments by, say, 10%, which is what has been mooted at the moment, because that becomes permanently embedded in expenditure. And there's a ratcheting effect here, very difficult to roll back when the rain eventually comes, okay? So the payments, I'm not saying there shouldn't be support for social welfare recipients, but they should be of a once-off nature. 
And I hope that that is the approach. And that indeed is another sort of recommendation from the Department of Finance. Um, apart from the rainy day funds, they would also it would also be suggesting that um, the payments should be of a once off rather than of a permanent nature. I think the objections to that are pragmatic rather than in principle, because I think in principle, you're absolutely right. Obviously, the uh, once off payments should go to those that most need them. I don't think anybody could disagree with that. The, the main objection to that is that we have such little time to design these uh, payments to, to be actually in terms of policy design to get them where they're needed without actually creating even more anomalies and cliff edges within the welfare system than exist already, welfare traps and all the rest of it. And one of the reasons for going universal is that you don't uh, create even more distortions than you've already got, disincentives so that when you just earn those extra few quid, you lose all these benefits. Um, there are lots of technicalities to do with policy design that mean that this is incredibly difficult to do well, to do properly, to do appropriately. So I completely agree with you in principle. And I think that going forward, thinking about next year, because of course, this energy crisis might be with us for at least a couple of years, we hope not, but it might well be that in the short term, you need to go blunt. And as you know, Jim, I'm not a fan of universal benefits at all. People like you and me don't need universal benefits. There are lots of people like us that don't need them. Uh, and in the UK, at least, there's quite a, a, a small but significant groundswell of opinion of people who are giving their £400 credit that starts uh, on October the 1st. Our, our first giveaway was 400 quid that was announced by the previous Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. A lot of people are giving it away to charity. So I would remind people who are in receipt of universal benefits that don't need them that they can actually uh, not pocket them, uh, a, a forlorn hope, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of discussion and no doubt in the next podcast and the podcast after that, Jim, we're going to be talking about the budget at length. So let's park all this for now because we will undoubtedly return to it. And in the interest of time, I want to move on to uh, discussing specifically th this bit of the podcast motivated by an article I read in last Wednesday's Irish Times, in which a young person wrote a very heartfelt, very sincere piece about why she um, is going to be a Sinn Féin voter. And I'd like to just quote from the article, really, to set the context. And she says, Sinn Féin's appeal to Generation Z is undeniable. Many of us between 18 and 25 have almost lost faith in the state. We feel the government has taken advantage of us. Our situation is bleak. Sinn Féin's slogan, a time for change, seems to fit with what our generation needs. Their policy promises seem to be exactly what we are hoping for. They know their audience. And she goes on like this. As I say, it's heartfelt, it's sincere, and is worth taking seriously. But I do find the arguments used in the piece, which chime with a lot of things that quite a few people, um, in the Irish Times in particular, this article could have been written by Fintan O'Toole or Una Malali, people like that we have commented on before. And she starts by talking about the obvious one, the big one, of course, that everybody says the reason why they're going to vote for Sinn Féin is the housing situation. Um, but before I get on to that, I just want to talk about this idea that she introduces this article, that Ireland is somehow, she creates the impression that she thinks it's a failed state. And um, I really do think that the data um, do not support that assertion. Uh, if you compared the, the raw data on everything from disposable income, jobs, employment, population, uh, Ireland is now one of the richest countries in the world. The problems that it faces in things like housing in particular, but also health, are A, common to a number of countries, and 
Uh, yes, they are partly the result of dopey policies and policy could, could have been better in this area. I'd be the first to admit that. But it's also the case that they are problems of economic success. So let's take housing, Jim. Um, if you go back to the dark days of only three decades ago, and it, it's important to always remember where Ireland or indeed any country has come from when you start accusing it in the present day of being a failed state. Um, the number of houses per 1,000 of population back in 1991 was 329. So there was basically uh, three people for every dwelling house. And so number of people, number of uh, dwellings per 1,000 of population, when we had a much smaller population than we had now, um, three and a half million, so the population has grown 35% since then, a lot. We have had a, a, you know, a high birth rate, a lot of immigration. So 329 houses per 1,000 of population. This failed state, in particular when it comes to housing, how many dwellings per 1,000 of population do you think that we have now? And I know you know the number because I've told you before we came on air about this. We now have 424. So this dystopian housing situation is against a background where the housing stock per capita has grown dramatically by about 30%. Yeah, Chris, could I just interject there and say, I think these average numbers like this can distort, okay? Of course. Uh, one of the measures that we constantly hear thrown out in relation to Ireland's wealth is GDP per capita. I mean, GDP per capita is basically GDP uh, divided by the population, and Ireland performs very strongly. But what that does not tell you is about the distribution of that GDP, Okay. And likewise, I think with this average housing number you're throwing out there, um, I'd like to see um, for people aged between, say, 25 and 35, um, how many houses there are. And that is where the real issue is. You know, house prices, Chris, are mm. incredibly high in this country based you, on earnings. OK, I, rents are also incredibly high. As you just so, said to me, I, you're making my point for me. Um so I don't. I, the, the numbers that I'm quoting are suggestive of um, there have been quite a lot of houses built in Ireland over the last yes, thirty years. Yes. So um, the. But, but Chris, hang hang on a second. Be, between 2011 and 2021, we delivered just over twelve thousand houses per annum. I know there's Wait, been a recent problem. Yes. Because of the partly because of the financial crisis, partly because of the overbuilding that preceded the financial crisis. So I'm trying to look through what's happened recently. Um, but not ignore it and say in the round, has Ireland built houses or not over the last three decades? And, and the broad point that I'm making is that a lot of houses have been built. The number of houses available to each individual is up, not down, which is perhaps the impression that you might get when you listen to people talk about housing. The issue, as you rightly say, is how much is that housing cost? And then there's the sub-issue of rental availability and and prices and so there are things going on there that you and i have disagreed about in the past the driver of high high house prices in ireland is not i would suggest the supply of housing issue that everybody says it is because um the implication from this article because she goes on to talk about Sinn fein's promise of twenty thousand social and affordable homes to be built um it's not the building of new houses i would assert that if you do build create 20 if you created twenty thousand homes next year, above and beyond what we're already going to build, you might be surprised by how little impact that will have on 
house prices and on rents, because I think that that's linked in ways that people find very counterintuitive to interest rates and, and, and mortgage rates. It's all to do with the, the global phenomena of ultra low interest rates have driven all asset prices up, including especially houses. We've talked about that endlessly and we've, we've disagreed to some extent about that. So, uh, but the point about those 20,000 houses and it not being a, that big a deal that some people think it is, this is the Sinn Féin promise of 20,000 houses. Do you know how many dwellings there are in Ireland? Just over 2 million. Just over two million. I think it's yeah. two point three million. Yeah. So, if you're, how much do you think it would affect? That how much of a problem would be solved by building an extra twenty thousand? Very, very little. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. a drop in the ocean. But, 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 but still, Chris, if you if you look at, and I saw it again this week, a TD in North Dublin from the Labour Party um, on social media met, talking about the fight he is engaged in to prevent houses being built in a location in North Dublin. And, you know, he may be right. Maybe houses shouldn't be built in a place like St. Anne's Park. But, but, but on the other hand, the objections around the place to any housing development are quite extraordinary at the moment. And, and those people who are most critical about the lack of housing supply are also those that are most virulent in opposing every housing development that is suggested. Um, so that th- there is, I think, a huge fundamental issue with the supply of housing yeah. and the inability of the system to deliver. We've got to b- build a lot more than 20,000 in my yes, opinion. And I, do I, I don't want to give the impression that I don't think housing supply is not part of the solution. Of course it is. It's just that it is only part. And that a key part of building even more than 20,000 houses is wholesale reform of the planning system. This is true of both the UK and Ireland, actually, because the UK has housing issues as well, very similar to Ireland. And you've got to reform the planning system, another big bugbear of mine. The second thing I wanted to come on to, because we've got time constraints now, Jim, so bear with me for a second, is that um, this article written, as I say, very sincere, very well written by by this um, author, praising Sinn Féin and and, uh, explaining why she is going and she thinks her generation is going to vote for them is that Sinn Féin make lots of promises. The 20,000 is perhaps one of the key ones. One of the things I would urge people who are thinking of voting Sinn Féin in light of their promises is to think about where Ireland is in relation to where it's come from. I mean, I talked about 1991 levels of housing availability there. Um, You and I, Jim, when we were running around in short trousers, Ireland's biggest export was live cows. Um, well over 50% of Irish exports, the the changes in the Irish economy as a result of two things, luck and government policy have been enormous. And there have been steps forward, there have been steps backwards, absolutely governments have not always done good things, not always done bad things. But by and large, all you know your Irish economic history better than I do. Since the time of Whitaker, Irish economic policy has delivered the Ireland that you live in now. Economic policy, for good or ill, is massively consequential, but usually over the long rather than the short haul. And so what you have to look at is, okay, ask the question, and I'm not going to do what Harold Macmillan did, ended his political career in the UK as prime minister nearly, when he said to the British people who are moaning like crazy about Britain back in the late 50s, I think it was, he said, you've never had it so good. I wouldn't put it in quite such stark terms, but in terms of the numbers, Ireland never has had it so good. You now have a population of over 5 million. 
compared to a population of three and a half million back in 1991, that year that I spoke about. Somebody writing an article like this back in 1991 would have been writing it from Boston or London or Sydney because they'd have had to have emigrated. When I came to Ireland in 1988, everybody else was going the other way. People should um, understand the, the, the context of where Ireland has come from and where it is today. They should also understand what Sinn Féin, this party that they are going to vote for, have done where they have had power. Okay, so one of the things that's almost a shibboleth, it, you could, it's, it's the third rail of Irish politics, if you like, is that you're not allowed to do comparisons for political reasons. You're not allowed to do economic comparisons between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Northern Ireland is where Sinn Féin have had their hands on the lever of power, levers of power for quite some time. You mentioned GDP, and I'm going to start with that very inappropriate statistic, GDP. GDP per head in the North versus the South. You know, as well as I do, that it's 50% higher in the Republic than it is in the North. 50%. Now, as you rightly have said many times, inappropriate to use GDP as the denominator. So look at real disposable household income, a much better measure of what people actually feel and see in their daily life. It's 12% higher in the Republic. Poverty. The poverty statistics are much, much better in the Republic than they are in the North. You and I have done consultancy work in many areas, Jim, small commercial. We, we are available for consultancy work on many a subject. And one of the Weird subjects that we've done consultancy work together on is quality of life. And we know a little bit about this. And one of the conclusions that we reached in our quality of life report all those years ago is that the biggest single indicator of quality of life in any country is life expectancy. A child born in 2018 in the Republic can expect to live 1.4 years longer than a child born in Northern Ireland. It's a great summary indicator for a whole host of social economic conditions. Back in 1935, Northern Ireland was a net contributor to the Irish exchequer, uh, to the UK exchequer, forgive me, Freudian slip of the tongue. Um, in the last UK budget in last autumn, the UK government proudly, proudly announced, because it was looking for DUP votes, of course, that the subvention over this financial year is going to be £15 billion sterling. And that's how much it costs to keep the Irish, the Northern Irish economy afloat thanks to, in part, Sinn Féin policies. In the Republic, 13% of people work for the state in one form or another. In the North, it's nearly 30% because there are much, much fewer private sector jobs. So just be careful what you wish for. Always remember that where you come from. Always remember that economic policy is very consequential. This rather good economy that you have, not without its problems, can be damaged as well as helped by economic policy. That's the message that I'm trying to get across today. Okay, Chris, if you could give me a couple of minutes here, I know we're up against time constraints, but just to react to some of that, um, amazingly, you brought up that quality of life work we did all those years ago, um, because I was going to talk about it in a different, well, in the same context, really, I guess. But the United Nations Human Development Index, we spoke about that, uh, whatever, 15 years ago. Um, the latest data for 2021 shows that Ireland is number eight in the world. Switzerland, one, Norway, two, Iceland, three, Hong Kong, four, Australia, Denmark, Sweden, and then Ireland. So if Ireland is such a dystopian kip, as that writer was suggesting, and a lot of others do, um, you know, th this flies in the face of that. The, the, United, the United Nations Human Development Index 
is a very good measure of quality of life. Um, a second thing I would say is that in terms of the changing structure of the economy, in the first six months of this year, 65% of our exports came from the chemical and pharma sector and just 5.6% came from the agri-food sector. So that has represented a massive structural change in the economy. A third thing I would say is that the day I left San Francisco earlier this week, um, the leader of Sinn Féin arrived in San Francisco. And in fact, I saw her entourage going through the airport. She has been speaking at a couple of events in San Francisco, and she's giving two very different messages. Uh, the first event was in a sort of a, a lot of people from Silicon Valley and so on attending. Um, she was very upbeat about Ireland as a place to do business, etc. And then um, later in the week, she was speaking to a mainly Irish audience in the Irish Culture Centre, where basically she was you know, t talking very negative about what's going on in Ireland and that Sinn Féin would solve it all. So very different messages there. But um, I, I and the other thing I noticed in the week leading up to her arrival, there was a lot of efforts being made by particularly people from Northern Ireland in San Francisco to sell very expensive tickets for dinners for the Sinn Féin leader. Fun, this is all fundraising stuff. Um, and I just think to my, I mean, it was not it was not solely people from Northern Ireland, but some Southerners as well living out there. But uh, it, it really pissed me off, I have to say, because these people are promoting um, a politician, a party and a set of policies that they will never have to live with or endure the consequences of that. So it, it's 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 mad kind of stuff. And um, it, it does worry me. Yeah, I think the way in which Mary Lou MacDonald and other Sinn Féin leaders present their policies, if I would summarise that party's platform manifesto, I would describe it as populist. And I think that one of the great reasons why Ireland is in the situation that it is in now, successful but certainly with problems, is that it's avoided the populist plague that, for example, infected Britain in, all around the Brexit referendum, and that if you elect a bunch of populists, then you should know what to expect because populism does have consequences and we can see the consequences of electing people, Brexiteers in the UK, Trumpists in the United States, what's going to happen in Italy. And to conclude this podcast with a quote from that article in the Irish Times written by that, that young journalist that, that I've mentioned, um, she said, we're going to give them a go because it can't get much worse. And it's on that point that I would stress that she couldn't, the author couldn't be more wrong. Of course, it could get worse. It could get a whole lot worse, depending on policy, because policy is very consequential for good or ill. Jim, we should call it there unless you feel that you have to add something. Nah, winter is coming. Uh, well, let's hope not, Jim. Let's hope that uh, um, the, in the unlikely event that anybody under 25 is listening to this podcast, that we might have changed one or two minds. Great to have you back, and I look forward to doing this again with you very, very soon. Cheers, mate. Super, super Chris. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.